So yeah, thank you for coming. Uh, Young Urban Zen, San Francisco Zen Center. As I said at the beginning, my name's Kodo. Who's here for the first time? Great, great, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, who here knows what we're talking about this time? Some, yeah, all right. If you're here, here uh, not knowing what we're talking about, I'm gonna lead in gently. Um, so it's been about six weeks since I've been with all of you, kind of unexpectedly. I was, uh, I was here quite a lot, like every other week, every three weeks, something like that, and then um, this and that happened, but I've done quite a bit in the interim. So much has happened in six weeks. Uh, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of Soto Zen in North America, which was just a blast, as you might imagine. Uh, Trevor Noah retired from The Daily Show. Uh, Brittany Griner came home. Argentina made it to the finals today. And uh, last week, uh, I was um, a trainee on a retreat at Spirit Rock. And the theme of that retreat is what I want to talk to you about. Uh, delightfully titled, um, Befriending Mortality, Awakening to Life Through Contemplating Death. I'll let that sink in for just a second. Awakening to life through contemplating death. And I want to talk about really just one of the takeaways, one of the takeaways from this. It was a, it was a profound experience for me. And the, one, of the, one of the basic takeaways that I took was that a, a real lived familiarity, a sort of intimacy with this truth of our own mortality shifts something in us. And in the language of the retreat, it, it awakens us to our life. I think, I think maybe most importantly for me, it, it shifted something and really raised this question for me of how I want to live my life. How do I want to live? What do I want to do with this precious life? So, um, the teaching team was delightful. So, uh, three folks, uh, Nikki Mirgafori, who seems to be some sort of specialist in this, uh, this practice. Um, her Dharma sister, who runs Insight LA, who uh, is Beth Stern-Lieb. And then um, a monk of 40 years named Sayada Ujagara. He was born, born in Canada, uh, trained in Asia for some 40 years, and now is back in Canada. I name these people with a lot of joy in my heart. Um, basically, I saw, the, I saw qualities in them that were so beautiful. It was like they were the perfect people to talk about such a topic, right? And what I saw was this, this combination of heart humility, and humor. Humility and humor, yeah. So one of the beginnings, and one of the things they emphasized sort of a lot, was that we enter, in, we enter into this um, mindfulness of death, this Maranasati practice, with a, with a certain kind of attitude. One might think you like, 
dive into the darkest corners of your heart and like go excavating. Uh, it's not quite the approach, not quite the approach, uh, at least not for the beginning. The idea is to enter into the practice with an intention to maintain a brightness of mind. So I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try to do that with us tonight as we start talking about this and maybe watch it for yourself. Keeping a brightness to the quality of mind, a sort of levity, you know, still taking, taking it seriously, but um, not, not letting the mind become heavy and uh, dominated. Still free, still free. So, one of the reasons I was drawn. Am I going in and out a little bit? I just changed the battery, so we'll just we will live with that. Um, one of the reasons I was drawn to this is that uh, the truth of mortality stays pretty close for me. I think maybe maybe many of you know that I, I practice with a chronic illness, um, which means I'm always one vial of insulin away from uh, death, from being in the hospital. You know, I, I, de I depend on this like tiny dose of hormone to be able to eat and live and without that. So it, uh, it stays close, it stays close. I think about it often. And particularly there was this, there was this really important moment when I was living at Tassajara when um, I had a really close call. Um, I was walking with a friend, we were up on a hill, I didn't have any uh, what, diabetic medicine called honey with me in my bag and my blood sugar starts to drop. I'm trudging up the hill, trudging up the hill. I start to realize that it, you know, I'm getting in the danger zone but maybe I'm okay. And then it occurs to me that I, you know, I've gone too far, I can't make it back. I can't make it back, and not only that, but my blood sugar's dropping so fast that I don't even think that my friend can make his way back and bring back sugar in time for me to make it. So I do the sensible thing. How do, I burn the, how do we burn the least amount of sugar with the body? I sit down, and I decide the best thing I can do, I'm just gonna do zazen. I'm just gonna sit zazen right here in the evening light on the side of this hill. My friend bolts down the, down the mountain, I see him rushing, and hear him calling for people. And the moment I know I'm really in trouble, I look over to my left and the moon is rising. The moon is rising and I see two of them. And I think, oh, this is it. This is it for me. This is the, I'm gonna, this means I'm about to lose consciousness and then I, I won't be here anymore. Then the thought occurs to me, you know, what do you do in the face of that, right? There wasn't much I could do, but the thought occurred to me, did I do everything I wanted to do? Did I live the life I wanted to live? That answer came up and then the answer came. and It was like, oh, almost. I never got to ordain as a priest. I really wish I would have done that, which I have since done. So I'm sitting there not losing consciousness, just sort of waiting for it. And I see a truck with uh, my friends in the back. I see, uh, or they're, they're down on a trail below. 
I hear one of them jump out of the truck, barrel, barrel through the woods, and the next thing I see is my beautiful friend with a top knot, a six and a half foot tall man, with a jar full of honey, and he's just like, ah. It's like the last handing of the baton in the Olympics or something, and he, hand, he collapses and hands this thing over to me. They saved my life. So um, mortality stays close. And it really, it really was an important moment for me. And, you know, I mean, a, a close call does something to someone, but the fact that that question came up, it was like, oh, am I, am I good? Am I satisfied here? And when I realized it was fine, it really was fine, that shifted something in me. So... In just the same way we started, we started with a sitting, the practice of mindfulness of death, becoming intimate with one's mortality, is best done in an embodied, full-bodied way. And for a couple of reasons, you know, there are truths that come to us through the body that don't come through the mind, of course. But the thing I want to emphasize tonight is it provides a sort of wide, broad holding in which a difficult truth like this can happen. It's so much easier for uh, a challenging truth to enter us if the heart is soft and held and open and loved and loving. So through the practice of embodiment, the heart begins to relax and open. Another great support is the support of Sangha, support of community. It's like we need a lot of support to look death squarely in the face. And I think, I think it's worth emphasizing that, that um, we're very well supported to just not think about death at all. Just really, really well supported. Um, I think Nikki was quoting Sam Harris, but talked about this, talked about this observation, like how many things do we do how many activities do we do that assume eternity for us? Like watching a rerun, a bad rerun for the 10th time, or like bickering again with that roommate or that spouse or partner or something. It's like these things only make sense if we assume that we have a long life. To that point, there, to, to the other point, there's this quote in the Dhammapada about um, few realizing that we must die, but for those who realize it, quarrels end. Quarrels end. In lieu of our being supported to know and be intimate with the truth of death, actually we're uh, instead, I don't know about you, maybe I'll just speak for me, I find myself concerned with media, um, money, my phone, um, conflicts, grudges, um, work. Does any of this ring any bells? This is like the stressful content of a lot of our life. Um, yeah. And then we have, the, we have the broader support of society. This was written up in a beautiful way. I don't think I have time to go into it tonight, but talking actually about the death trade 
how like the, the, the functions that process our bodies after we die are, are hidden, hidden from our eyes. So that's one doorway into like coming to ask the question and coming to be more intimate with our death is, oh, what does happen? What does happen after I go? I'll leave that as something to follow up later. But anyway, we have all this support to not pay attention to it. And then there's a way that just like in Zazen, when we let go, we let go of all that stuff. Something really beautiful can arise. You know, in the denial of death, it's not a them. It's not like they, oh, they deny. They're denying me my death. It's us. It's like we do this. And I think for good reason. Like it's hard. It's difficult to swallow. It's difficult to approach and difficult to be with. That's why this softened heart, embodiment, kindness, and sangha can be so important. So I want to tell you about one moment that happened on this retreat that uh, really drove home this point about sangha as a support. And that was, um, we were about to do a small group exercise. And uh, it was set up by telling the story of Kisa Gotami and the mustard seed. Has anyone heard this story before? Classic. Yeah. Difficult, difficult story. In brief, it's that um, there was a mother mother, uh, in the time of the Buddha who's um, whose child had died, whose child had passed, and she was grieving in a difficult way, um, sort of lost. And at last, someone recommended that she, she make her way to the Buddha, that, oh, he, he can help. He can help. She's carrying around her child. And when she comes to the Buddha, the response, the, the response is, oh, yes, oh, yes. I can help you, but I want you to go into the town and bring me a mustard seed from the home of anyone who has not been touched by death. So she has a new hope. She goes house to house, like knocking, knocking. First house. Oh, I'm gonna, do you have a mustard seed? Oh, yes, mustard seed. Great, I have one. Oh, has anyone, been, has anyone here died? Oh, yes, of course. My brother and my mother... Second house, same. Third house, same. And through this process, she comes to rea- she, it comes to dawn on her through this like, physical practice of walking and moving and meeting and being with others. Oh, this is the truth for us. We're bound to this. It's the nature of this body to pass away. It's not in any way to understate or diminish the grief involved in this story but just to highlight this one point of the truth, the, the truth of our, our dying. So we were starting this small group exercise with this story. I'd heard it many times before, more or less. I'm like, yeah, okay, everybody dies. Got it, check. And then we set up this small groups and um, I'm sitting up on the, on the platform with the teachers so I can see a hundred people. They'll break into threes and the prompt is something like, Share something with your group about your either experience with, relationship to, your ideas about death. You know, anything that puts you in relationship to mortality, more or less. 
What's your relationship to death? Simple enough. What something that clicked for me when I saw everyone turn and that there wasn't a moment's hesitation and everyone started talking. It was one of these mustard seed moments that was like, oh yes, this does touch everyone. And not only does it touch everyone, but everyone has a story. Everyone knows about this and everyone's life is touched by it. I was talking to a friend earlier who referred to death as the great leveler. It's like no matter, no matter the class, no matter your background, no matter your work, no matter your situation. And there was something really beautiful about seeing it actually. So to turn to the, the Zen practice a bit, I think, I think in Zen, there's so many ways that Zen can be thought of as a culture, but it's really interesting that I think Zen tries to keep the great matter of life, life and death right in the center focus. On the, uh, there's this board that struck in the morning to call us to Zazen. Da, 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 da. It strikes once a minute, loud, throughout the temple, you can hear it. And on the, on the board, it says, great is the matter of birth and death. All is impermanent, quickly passing. Awake, awake, each one, don't waste this life. So you hear that, clack, life and death, truth of life and death. Clack, 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 clack. And what do we do? We go sit zazen. It's amazing. So there's that, there's the, we call that, we call that board the Han. There's this tradition of Japanese death poems that I'll get back to in a little bit, but this tradition of um, uh, Zen masters writing a final poem before they pass. And then one of the most traditional functions of temples like this one is to hold memorial services. Every month we hold a memorial for the founder of the, the temple. Uh, we make an offering here at the altar. We, uh, we make tea for Suzuki Roshi and we offer it in this very formal way in this beautiful cup. Um, and through that practice of giving, sort of renew the connection. So one of my, uh, one of my mentors uh, used to volunteer at the Zen hospice and he, much to my surprise, once told me that he had been changed more or maybe he said the same, I don't want to exaggerate. He had been changed as much by working in hospice as he had been by going on retreat. This was like years of retreat practice this person had done and years of hospice and he said, both were essential to the person he was. And in thinking about this, like when, one, when one is doing hospice work, when one's caring for someone who's dying or one is accompanying someone who's dying, it's this like simple accompaniment of attention, embodiment, and presence in a way that communicates, I'm here. If you need anything, I'm here for you. We'll just be here together. Sometimes you'll hear about hospice, hospice workers just breathing with people, just accompanying them. 
It's so much like zazen. Something that's so profound about a transformation like this mentor of mine, or much like I heard in, these, in the reports of these, these folks who are on retreat, is that we don't dictate how our relationship to death will change us. We can't dictate how it will shape us. But it's like it, it, it's like it fertilizes something that's already beautiful and already there. And one, one way I saw this happening was like, it was almost like the static of people just started to fall away and their priorities started to become so clear. And person after person was saying like, oh yes, this, this, is, a, this is a change in my life. Ah, let's see how I can feel this. As time is getting on, I'm going to tell you a story. That is, um, I guess it was about five years ago. Um, my wife and I left Tassajara, and we lived outside of Zen Center for about, about a year. And as has been my good fortune, I tend to land in Buddha lands. I tend to land in pretty good circumstances. Um, and I, we, we, um, we found our way into doing in-home hospice care for um, a friend in the East Bay. Her name is Hema. And uh, I feel like I landed in a Buddha land, not only because of her just profound dignity and beauty throughout her life and death, but also because her house was literally filled with Buddhas. It's like every room had a huge Buddha in it. So this beautiful garden out back and these Buddhas outside. But we, um, yeah, we cared for her and we really bonded in some, in some significant way. I wasn't there when she passed. I um, um, had arranged to go on a two-month retreat at Spirit Rock and, and uh, a couple of weeks go by Things are getting very still. I'm in that place where you go when zazen gets very still. Somebody once asked Suzuki Roshi where we, what, where we go when we die, and he says, oh, we go to that place we go when we sit zazen. So I'm in, the, I'm in this retreat of about two weeks. A teacher calls me into the interview room, and he says, oh, Koto, I've got some news for you. Uh, I just got a call, and Hema has passed. And in, the, in the, that still lake, of mindfulness, stability. That news came in and what came out? I smiled. I was so relieved. I just felt full of joy for her. Her time was up. Her time was done. It wasn't like a celebration of the fact that she died. It's not a morbid sort of thing, but it was just the end of her life was so difficult. And I knew now that 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 wasn't, that wasn't what she was dealing with anymore. Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, has this idea that, you know, in some way, yes, we die. And in some way, we become the rain and we become the clouds and we become the soil. Suzuki Roshi used to say he would become American soil. There's also this image of... Um, trees that fall in the forest. 
Anyone ever seen pictures of these in the forest? And the dense, heavy forests are like big oaks or these big uh, conifers that fall over and they die. And in the photos, there's all this life on them. All this life. It's like the, uh, the nutrients that made up this tree then feed the ferns and they feed the mushrooms and they feed the, the, the bugs and the animals. They're called nurse logs, I learned. It reminds me of like a nursing mother. It's like with, with the passing of this one being comes all this life, all this life. I think of Hema that way. It's like she, um, she cared for us and we cared for her and she cared for the world. She spent 40 years as a social worker and an educator. So I think of all the little ferns that grew up around Hema. And maybe to close, just a bit about... Hmm. Gosh. I'm making a choice now. And that choice is going to be, I'm gonna say something about the meditation practice on death. So an important piece to maintain the bright mind. I really found that as I was, I was there with these meditators. Practice of the bright mind and then a way to stay close to death, close to one's dying, close to one's mortality. Very simple practice. After having become embodied in the way we were and tuning into one's aliveness, to tune into the breathing. We're so accustomed to this, right? Tune into the breathing and drop in the idea with your breathing, this could be my last breath. This one. This one could be my last breath. Sometimes that one doesn't quite connect. And instead, uh, an alternate can be, my last breath, there will be a last breath, and it will be like this one. There will be an inhale, there will be an exhale, and then there won't. The last breath. So that simple practice. In a way you can sort of keep bumper guards on that practice. You're doing it in a way that keeps the bright mind and particularly doing it in a way that helps you stay mindful or are you spinning, spinning into actually grief, which, uh, which is its own important practice. Not, not at all setting aside grief, but for this meditation practice. Gonna go in this other direction. So can you maintain mindfulness? And then you also know it's working because there might be a sense of urgency that arises, maybe even through the body. It's like, oh, I do just have this life. If, that, if that's coming in at a, at a tolerable dose, the practice is working. The practice is working. If that all feels like a bit of doing, very different approach to this. And that is, do your zazen the way you do your zazen. Before you sit down, to reflect on the five reflections. Maybe even say them to yourself. You might even think about printing out a little card and putting it next to your seat. These are five reflections that the Buddha taught 
taught to reflect upon daily, to contemplate daily. I'm of the nature to age, I've not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to grow ill, I've not gone beyond illness. I'm of the nature to die, I've not gone beyond death. Everyone and everything I love, I can't help it, will be separated from me. I can't take any of them with me. And fifth, we are the owners of our actions, the heirs to our actions, born of our actions, arbiters of our actions. Everything we do, for good or for ill, to that we'll fall heir. And this is the turn. This is where, this is actually where the, that feeling of the, the static falling away, that touch with mortality, puts us in touch with priority. Oh, this is how I want to live my life. And this fifth reflection can be a reminder, oh, my actions really matter. Last thing I'll say, as, a, um, as, an, as an exercise on this retreat, we all wrote our own obituary. There's this whole collection of reflective practices that can happen in addition to meditation practice. Um, writing your own epitaph, writing an obituary. Um, we were all encouraged to download the app We Croak, which five times a day reminds you, you are going to die. <laughs> it's free. And it, and it comes with a quote. Yeah. Uh, I felt a notification while we were talking, so I, I didn't forget. Um, but when I wrote my own obituary, which was a surprisingly powerful practice to do and then to read it to someone, to read it aloud. And this is the thing that I, the thing that I got out of it, or the thing that struck me immediately was, I noticed that all of my accomplishments didn't make it onto the obituary. Anything that I had done, it did not matter. Or not, but it wasn't like my actions didn't matter, but it wasn't like, any of my ambitions didn't make it on. And I thought, wow, how much stress I have generated in my life. And from the perspective of my death, it was like, oh, man. Hmm. Instead, what stood out for me, it was a long list of all the people I loved. That really mattered to me. Yeah. So anyway, we did... Like I said, we won't we can't say what the influence of a frequent practice of the contemplation of death will do. We do tend to know, clarifies priority, sheds all sorts of greed and hatred, and then it makes space for whatever is really beautiful in you to come up, out, and flower unencumbered. Anyway, thanks for your attention to these reflections. Let's, um, let's say thank you and pause a minute. And feel free to stretch your legs again. <laughs>